0: This episode of Disease Du Jour is brought to you by EquineVetEDU.com, a free online educational platform for veterinarians from the AVMA PLIT and Aquamanagement.com. Welcome to EquiManagement's podcast, Disease Du For where each podcast will delve into the research and current best practices for a variety of equine health problems with industry experts. I'm your host, Kimberly Brown, publisher of Equamanagement. Today's guest is Dr. Steve Reed of Reed and Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, and we'll be talking about equine herpes virus and equine herpes virus myeloencephalopathy. Dr. Reed earned his DVM at the Ohio State University, followed by a residency at Michigan State University. He started his academic teaching career at Washington State University, where he taught from 1979 until 1983. Then he returned to The Ohio State University, where he spent 26 years as a professor and mentor in the equine medicine department, before joining Rudin Riddle, where he is an internal medicine specialist and shareholder of the practice. Dr. Reed also is an emeritus professor of The Ohio State University, an adjunct professor at the University of Kentucky, and is currently the chairman of the Grayson Jockey Club Research Advisory Committee. Dr. Reed is a diplomate in the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, and is a noted author and editor of numerous scientific articles and textbooks. He has spoken at many state, national, and international meetings. His primary research interests include equine neurologic diseases. This podcast recording will focus on equine herpes virus and what veterinarians should know to recognize, prevent, and treat this problem. Dr. Reed, welcome and thank you for joining us on Disease Du Jour.
1: Thanks, Kim. It's great to be here and uh, great to have an opportunity to visit with you. And uh, see you back here in Central Kentucky. Uh, it's exciting also to talk a little bit about uh, equine herpes virus, uh, a disease that you're right, it is a disease de jour. Lots of worry about this, uh, and it's as a problem.
0: Well, let's start out by talking about why is herpes virus knowledge important to equine veterinarians, respiratory and neurologic?
1: That's uh, a good question. Certainly, the, uh, this particular virus the respiratory tract is the way in which it's transmitted. So it's going to be uh, by a a close contact from horse to horse. Now it's an interesting virus in that once it infects the epithelial cells, it gets into the body and then it starts to migrate around in what they call a cell-associated viremia. So inside the body, it's in lymphocytes and it's traveling around uh, inside those cells in the bloodstream. Uh, and the real damage, whether it be damage to the respiratory system, damage to the neurologic system, or even damage to the uh, reproductive system, is once it attaches to those endothelial cells, so those cells lining the blood vessels, that's when the real damage starts. So people need to know uh, how we can prevent you know infection, so that's why everyone, we'll talk in a little bit about vaccines and what they might do. Uh, we'll talk about the role the uh, respiratory system plays in other infections, and then we can talk a little bit, uh, emphasize, I think, the neurologic form.
0: Okay, so we're we're speaking with equine veterinarians, and we know their clients get really nervous about the neurologic form of equine herpes virus, but is the neurologic <laughs> form really on the rise, or are we just recognizing it more as veterinarians?
1: Um, you know, there's a I think that part of it is that we are recognizing it more. However, it seems in the last 10 years that we've seen more and more uh, neurologic outbreaks. And in fact, uh, it may be they were there, but when uh, either veterinarians didn't recognize them or because there were only a few horses involved, uh, there wasn't the, the keen awareness or worry about it. Um but there's no doubt that over the last 10 to 15 years, we have seen more and more outbreaks at areas where large numbers of horses are congregated. So um, seeing it at the racetrack, seeing it at showgrounds, uh, seeing it at boarding stables seems to be a real on the rise.
0: So what are your recommendations for suspecting and diagnosing herpes virus neurologic form? I mean, you're the vet you show up, here's this horse, what do you expect to happen as soon as you show up?
1: Well, I think, you know, uh, the the very first thing that you need to do is you're going to already have kind of a rough idea of whether or not there's something, um, you know, like equine herpes virus or some other viral or contagious disease ongoing when you get the history. So when the people call you up, they're, they're going to be probably warning you, oh, there's multiple horses involved. So you're already going to have a an index of suspicion. But when you arrive there, I think it's going to be critical to get a, an even more accurate history. Have there been any horses that have been coughing, snotty noses, horses with fevers? Have you seen that? Um, You know, it's kind of interesting with this particular virus in that it's a biphasic fever. So when the respiratory signs and the early infection starts, there might be a fever and often that goes undetected. So people miss it. The second time there's a fever, which might be the first time that people really are aware of it, often that's the time when the neurologic signs, abortions or other problems will show up. And so um, so those are the kind of, some of the first things you're going to see. So you may or may not see coughing. You may or may not see a fever. Uh, what you might see when you first get there is neurologic disease involving multiple horses.
0: What are your recommendations for suspecting and diagnosing that it's a, heap, a, a herpes virus cause?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, so first and foremost, you can start getting even more close, uh, closer to the answer as you look at the horses. So um, as I said, the virus is spreading around in cells. And once it causes damage to the nervous tissue, it causes a stroke-like problem. And so it causes what we would define as vasculitis. And um, so those those acute signs are going to be you know, very, very dramatic onset. And usually it's kind of an ascending paralysis. So when it's classic form, it involves pelvic limbs first, and there'll be a little bit of weakness there. But other things you'll see loss of tail tone, and frequently it'll damage that uh, portions of the nervous system that control the bladder. So you're going to see urinary incontinence, occasionally fecal incontinence. So you're going to get those kind of early signs. So when you've got a horse or a group of horses with ascending paralysis, urine dribbling, you start thinking, "Ooh, this could be herpes. So you got multiple horses involved right off the bat. Um, it's not the only thing that can cause an ascending paralysis, but it's certainly going to be right at the top of your list.
0: And today, what treatments are considered for the neurologic form of herpesvirus?
1: Well, that, that's, um, there's a lot of, of new work. Because the primary clinical signs are vasculitis or these stroke-like episodes, uh, using some sort of an anticoagulant is going to be really, really uh, important. Uh, recently, there's been more and more work on heparin, Uh, There's some uh, papers and it's a worldwide problem. There are papers out of South Africa, out of Germany, um, you know, Australia, as well as uh, out of uh, Canada and the United States in North America showing uh, that uh, the vasculitis and managing it with uh, heparin or some other anticoagulant have been really, really critical. Beyond that, Um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications are going to be helpful. So banamine, phenylbutazone, drugs like that. The other thing, there's some work that we've done over time uh, by some of the researchers in Germany, Lutz Goering, Klaus Osterreiter, showing that uh, even though we know these non-steroidals are helpful, it's better to not stack them. To pick one or the other and just use that. So, if you like banamine, choose banamine. If you like Butte, choose Bute. If you like Aspirin, use Aspirin. Aspirin might also uh, have an impact on the vasculitis because of its effect on uh, platelets. So that that those are the kind of things that that are really really good uh in a second we might uh, discuss further the use of antivirals but for now early on when you get there i think those are going to be the things that most veterinarians should be thinking about and do
0: and again you had mentioned before we came on air about getting a good history so we know a lot of horse owners have their own medicine cabinet at home so being able to, to know what the horses got on board, because as you mentioned this biphasic, they may have noticed the first fever and tried to do something about the cough or something before they called. We know horse owners can sometimes take matters into their
1: own hands. The good news for them is if they chose a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent, that may have been uh, of some particular benefit for them. Um, you know, to expand further on the treatment... Early in the course of the disease, that might have been, if there is ever a good time, to use antiviral agents like valcyclovir and uh, gancyclovir and some of these uh, uh, particular products early in the course of the disease. So uh, this is an alpha herpes virus, and uh, one of the unique things about this particular virus is Once the animal is infected, they're probably going to remain infected for life. Now, where that virus stays in latency, you know, we we don't really know. Maybe it stays inside the lymphocytes. Maybe it stays in some of the neurons. We certainly worry about it being, and you hear about uh, the possibility of it being in the trigeminal ganglion. Mm -hmm. So along one of the cranial nerves in people who are unfortunate enough to... Have uh, similar problems like herpes simplex, where they get fever blisters. Uh, It's often at you know somewhere along the you know their uh, lip or uh, gum area, and again they think the virus is uh, permanently infected or hanging out in their trigeminal ganglion.
0: And you wanted to talk some about the antivirals. Let's let's get delve into those a little more because I'm I'm sure that veterinarians either have questions about it or will be asked about it by their owners.
1: Right. Well, the antiviral agents, you know, um, again, if you get them early in the disease, they will shorten the course of the disease. You may not be able to fully prevent it with the antiviral agents, uh, but they should definitely have an impact to lessen the severity of signs and to shorten the course of the disease. Uh, Probably one of the the biggest uh, headaches is early on, at least with the... uh, A lot of people were using acyclovir. Well, there's been a lot of work showing that acyclovir is not well absorbed in the horse. So you need to use a more later generation of these antivirals like the valcyclovir, gancyclovir, some of these other uh, agents. The the other thing that's going to be critical is that uh, you need to utilize them early on at a high dose. I think the dose that's been recommended is like for the first three days, 27 mg per kg. Uh, two or three times a day, and then you cut to 18 milligram per kilogram. Well, if you go to the store and you or I have a fever blister and your doctor writes you a script for beer, uh, you're going to know that's an expensive medication. And so administration at the dosages that are going to be critical for horses can sometimes be uh, cost prohibitive. So you got to at least be aware of all that. So veterinarians need to be aware of A, how to use them, not to use acyclovir, to use another one. B, they need to know that uh, early in the disease, they need to give it multiple times a day, not just once a day. And then finally, they need to know that after a couple of days, they can cut the dose down, and that they probably don't need to be on there terribly long. Maybe five, three, five, seven, ten 10 days might be uh, adequate amount of time.
0: And what about using some of these antivirals in horses that are exposed but showing no clinical signs?
1: Um, that that's probably, if you can get the horses before they've shown clinical signs as a preventative, that might be the very, very best time. And uh, some of our colleagues uh, in Germany, again, Lutz Gehring, I mentioned, and Osterrider, they have done uh, some work to demonstrate that either the antivirals, oh, and uh, I don't mean to cut anyone out, but Laura Maxwell at Oklahoma State has done a lot of work showing that administration of the antivirals early on as a preventative can be quite effective.
0: Okay, so as a veterinarian, you've got a client that's bringing a neurologic horse into your clinic. What are you going to do? I mean, biosecurity, uh, different diagnoses, what's... What are you going to be thinking of as that horse is on its way?
1: Well, all of those things are critical. So right off the bat, making the, the horse is on its way to your hospital, and so you're already getting a list of differentials. If that horse is in a group that's had multiple other horses that have been affected— or if you know there's been a history of fever on the farm, uh, then you're probably going to be thinking, okay, I'm going to segregate this horse from all other horses when it arrives until I do my initial examination. Remembering, too, that this is a virus spread by respiratory secretions, you're going to need to protect yourself because if there's mucus at that horse's nose, there may be virus there, and if you put that on your hands, on your gloves, on your hair... On your clothes, you might carry it to another horse. So usually when we suspect these horses and they're coming to our hospital, they get off of the van, they're received by somebody already dressed in full isolation garb, including a, a hairnet to cover their hair. Where They go directly into the, uh, a stall, and we have two of our isolation stalls are segregated from the rest for respiratory disease. So we have a little bit more of a barrier down there since this is spread so rapidly in that way. Having said that, I think a lot of times you need to be really aware of the people handling the horse of your technicians and of yourself because this virus can live in mucus for some period of time and you could transfer it from horse to horse through you, know, you carrying it over to another horse. So that's the thing you asked me about, what are you going to think when the horse is arriving? So first and foremost, you're going to be thinking about that. Secondly, when it gets there, you're going to be doing your physical examination and the neuro exam should be an extension of the physical exam. So you're just going to move directly into to doing that. Um, a lot of times, as I said, it'll be an ascending paralysis. So if the horse is weak behind and dribbling urine, you are already got a high index of suspicion that that's probably uh, you know, where, you know, where you're headed. So you're going to keep that horse segregated. You're going to put it into a, a, a quarantined or segregated environment. And then you're going to start, because it's viral spread at the nose, you're going to start with uh, doing some nasal swabs. And most of the time, you're going to probably use PCR early on. So you're going to be doing something that can be done in fairly short time. Um uh, in fact, one of the things, and, and maybe I've gone on too long, but one of the things that's happening right now is more and more stall-side or horse-side testing. And um, as you and I were talking about a minute ago about to how much change has been in technology over time, there are lots and lots of devices that are being made Uh, that can be utilized on your cell phone that might help give you an idea of whether or not you've got some particular viral infection. And uh, so, um, uh, you know, there are just more and more things. Having the ability to make an early, rapid recognition that's accurate is going to really be helpful in preventing spread of the disease to other horses.
0: Okay, let's say that you are the lucky vet who gets called out to the showgrounds because a horse is running a fever, not acting right.
1: Boom! There you go. So, so first and foremost, now you got to again, you got to put on all of the hats of, of being a, a veterinarian, and uh, you got to look after the interests of the horse. That's going to be primary. The interests of the owner equally primary. All of the other animals that are on that showgrounds are going to be, they all suddenly have become your patient because your one of your jobs is going to be to make an early recognition of this, uh, get as accurate a diagnosis as you can. So getting the animals that have a fever in some ways segregated off is going to be a good idea. If you're lucky, the racetrack or showgrounds or wherever you're going will have already thought of this in advance, and they're going to say, gosh, we've got an area over here that any animals that get really sick during this competition are going to move to this part of the area. So getting them out of the environment with the other horses is going to be one of the first and most critical things to do. The other thing is, whilst it's worth being worried about, you don't want to be an alarmist. You, don't want, you, want, to, you want to let everybody know this is the potential to be serious, but our goal is to get an answer, and so we're going to do this in a stepwise fashion, but as rapidly as we can, as accurately as we can, and with as little concern. You know, uh, with, with some of the things that have happened, if you look all the way back to '03, with the outbreak at, uh, up in Ohio, or you look at the outbreak that was in Ogden, Utah, and spread, you know, some of the biggest concerns... Or what happens to those animals that don't get sick but were exposed, and now they move into another environment. Sometimes their immune system prevents them from showing any clinical signs, but they might still carry the virus with them and spread it to other animals on the farm or in a new environment. And so, so you have to be thinking also about the biosecurity Uh, of what you're going to do. And then, finally, you need to know the regulations in your state. Is this a reportable disease, non-reportable disease? If it's reportable, um, you know, it's going to happen in a lot of different ways. Number one, if it's reportable by you, it's also reportable by all the diagnostic labs. So once you submit uh, samples to those labs if it comes up positive, they're going to be obligated to notify the state veterinarian whether you did or not. Then, uh, so how do we expand from the diagnosis? So we started off with physical exam, neuro exam, nasal swab, then remember I said it's a uh, uh, cell associated viremia. So the next thing that you want to do is, is collect some of those cells. So do a complete blood count and Uh, Look at the buffy coat, the white blood cells that are on top of that, and uh, do PCR on those. So now you can say, not only is the virus at the nose, the virus is in the bloodstream. It's circulating around. Doesn't mean the horse is going to get the neurologic signs, but it's certainly at higher risk. Uh, One of the biggest areas of uh, focused research now is trying to get an understanding of why, when that virus is rolling along inside the blood vessels, why does it suddenly cause damage and enter into some endothelial cells setting up the vasculitis? Why is it suddenly, it's going along, and now all of a sudden it's, uh, it's disrupting things, it's causing a vasculitis, a blood clot there, and it's really those blood clots and the loss of blood supply to the nervous tissue or in the case of abortions, to the fetus and the placenta. They make the clinical signs what we see.
0: So what are your suggestions for avoiding herpes virus in general and the neurologic form?
1: Well, that's a a question. I don't know if I can give you a a complete answer. Certainly, uh, most horses that are going off to competitions are already in uh, areas where they're... Uh, usually well vaccinated, and the uh, and uh, in order to be able to compete, they got to be healthy. So most of the time, the owners have already started looking at the health and well-being of their animal. Uh, having said that, uh, this is a virus that can form latency. So if it's latently in the horse, then uh, some stress uh, factor might suppress the immune system and allow that latent virus to now start to uh, multiply again. Once it multiplies or replicates, depending on how high the level of viremia gets, uh, they may, in fact, get the virus at the nose and start spreading it around. So healthy horses, well-vaccinated horses, there are no vaccines that will guarantee prevention of any of the forms of the uh, this disease. So the respiratory the uh, abortion or the neurologic form, there are no vaccines that will guarantee prevention. Um, however, if in fact you keep your horse reasonably well vaccinated, that's going to be a part of the overall well-being of the horse. It's going to be a healthier horse when you do that. So that's going to be uh, the next thing. And then uh, beyond that it's recognition of what our stress factors travel can be a stress factor it might suppress the immune system exposure to other animals that are sick so before they leave home where there's sick horses on the farm you don't know about every horse in the environment so keeping your horses somewhat segregated as they arrive at the competitions now as you know if you go somewhere where there's a big competition and horses are going to be near each other they're going to be congregated together and Uh, since it's a viral respiratory spread and could be aerosolized usually we think 40 to 50 feet it might be able to spread in the air well most barn aisles aren't 40 feet across so uh, you know there's a a big concern so having some awareness of that and then beyond that simple things don't be sharing grooming tools don't be sharing buckets feed tubs you know all those kind of, uh, of usual things and certainly, if a horse is sick, getting that animal as far away from the other animals is going to be critical.
0: And what are some of maybe the outside the box experiences that you'd like to share about herpes virus or the neurologic form?
1: Well, I think you know uh, when I look or think back at my own career in the outside the box, you know, so uh, I dealt with an outbreak that uh, had that occurred on a uh, on a uh, school facility uh, that then some of the animals presented to a hospital where I worked, and um, it used to be that um, we were all of the opinion that once the neurologic signs showed up, that the viremia level was probably pretty low at that time, and that there was a lower probability for the horses to spread disease. Wrong answer. That didn't turn out to not be correct. And so one of the things that we think the reason for that is that some of the viruses have mutations, and some of the researchers, um, you know, individuals uh, both at places like the Gluck Center or now at Louisiana State with udini are we're knowing now that these the herpes virus can have many mutations and that one of the mutations that dr george allen uh, reported on before his death was that uh, this virus would have uh, the ability to replicate very rapidly so it had a replicative aggressiveness so the more rapid the virus replicates the higher number of viral particles are going to be at the nose in the bloodstream so more likely is it going to be a problem not only for that horse, but it's much more likely to spread rapidly amongst horses. Um, and we used to think that we all knew that it was just one particular uh, mutation that was the big factor. But now we're sort of realizing we don't know all the things that we thought we knew about the virus. And that's why there's still research going on, um, not only about understanding the horse and what happens to the horse, but understanding the virus in ways that the virus uh, can prevent itself how does the virus block itself from from the immune system of the horse how does the virus avoid uh, you know being uh, blocked by vaccination you know what are the factors so we need to just keep that in mind as well so uh you ask about an out of uh, out of box experience so we had this episode the horses came into the hospital They got into the group, I thought better, and moved them out of the group within 24 hours. We tried to keep them totally segregated in one barn. Uh, Somehow, horses, not only uh, that we didn't think had been exposed, never showed signs while they were there, left our hospital. And it's bad enough, they went home. But it was even more problematic because they went home to other states. One went to a state north of us, one to a state east of us. So now you've got the you know, state veterinarian in your home state angry with you, but you've also got the veterinarians in other states. And worse than that, a horse that did not show any clinical signs went home, and the only other horse on the farm was its dam, a 20-some-year-old mare. She did show clinical signs, and in fact, got so bad she had to be put down. So you know it's with with little premonitory signs, those kind of things happened. and so then you feel just uh, I mean, how bad do you feel for a client who loses an animal that you may have had some role in that? So I guess, That's kind of an out-of-body experience, you know. Uh, To me, the other thing that I think is critical is, you know, where we're going to go on new vaccines. New vaccines need to be out there. Our DNA vaccines. And what do we do in the face of an outbreak You know, can we nip an outbreak in the bud by taking uh, and vaccinating horses to make their antibody level up? Uh, Would it be better to use a modified live vaccine so that not only their antibody comes up, but also you turn on uh, interferon to block virus entering at the nose? Do you turn on cell-mediated immunity? All of those things uh, are critical. And so my personal thought, without strong evidence, is that a a use of a modified live vaccine is probably a good idea. It would be interesting as you talk to other experts on this today, uh, people who are virologists and and also veterinarians, what their thoughts are on use of vaccination. I'm kind of uh, for vaccinating uh, some horses in the face of an outbreak, particularly those that you don't know their immune status. Uh, and if i did it i would use a modified live vaccine
0: and are there any other final tips that you would give to equine veterinarians about either prevention treatment diagnosing of herpes virus problems
1: well i think uh you know as far as prevention again you know even though there are no perfect vaccines, I'm all in for vaccination. So having a good vaccination schedule on a regular basis without need for excessive vaccination is probably a good idea. That's number one. Number two, uh, uh, keeping yourself tuned in to not only with your clients, but also to everything that you can know about this respiratory and neurologic diseases, and in particular, understanding this problem, recognizing that the that the damage is due to vasculitis, so early acute treatment. Uh, we've been very, very impressed in uh, in recent times by the benefit that heparin has had. So we think heparin uh, might be uh, something that, if you use early, may nip the uh, signs, excuse me, nip them in the bud, and, and maybe even, uh, I, I remember a horse um, last year that staggered off the trailer that within five days, on Heparin was ready to go back home. And it was, uh, you know, on the way into the isolation stall, it nearly fell off the trailer. Uh, But, so that I think is going to be another key thing. And then uh, certainly um, all of us, I think, who uh, are going to be asked to show up when a problem arises need to be also tuned into uh, some understanding of biosecurity. And if you have the opportunity... To advise those people at the racetrack or at show grounds to think about the biosecurity plan ahead of time is going to be critical because we're all going to gain more when we're prepared for how to deal with things at that time. That's going to be a much beneficial thing. And then uh, also from your point of view, if you as a veterinarian have an idea of what samples I might want to collect, where I need to submit them and when uh, and how rapidly I need to get results back, and which labs are going to be the best for, you know, providing that information. Most state diagnostic labs are quite good. Having said that, not all of them work on the weekends. That's when all the horse shows happen. So, um, you know, you need to know where you can get things done and, uh, you know, and how you can get results back, uh, you know, rapidly and have some friends in the area. Most of, we're, we're blessed in this particular state because our state veterinarian, our diagnostic lab, as well as several of the private diagnostic labs are very tuned into the importance of the horse so we can get things done.
0: Well, we really appreciate you spending time with us today on Equine Management's Disease Du Jour, and we especially want to thank... Dr. Steve Reed, for spending some time with us. And we hope that um, you enjoy this podcast and we'll tune in for others in the future. Thank you very much.